you have your Bibles, and you better, turn to Matthew chapter 5. To begin this message, we are in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, because what we're going to be doing as we go through this is going through the next several months, the Beatitudes, the verses between verse 3 of chapter 5 and verse 16, and then we're going to be bringing in parts of and a good part of the sermon, the rest of the sermon, as practical application of these character traits of a believer that our Lord gives us in this chapter. I was visiting with a friend just on Friday. Ann and I were having lunch with Nate and Carol because they're getting ready to move, as you know, to Idaho. And as we were visiting, we were talking about the Sermon on the Mount, and Nate said to me, Dwight, how often have you heard the Sermon on the Mount preached in recent years? And I thought, and he doesn't mean just, you know, here at Prague, he means just across America. Have you, have you heard of people preaching it? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said basically the same thing, that he does not hear it preached very much at all. And very interesting, in the Sermon on the Mount, if you turn over to chapter 7, the last verses, beginning with verse 24, when he talks about building on the two foundations, he concludes the sermon saying, which foundation do you want to build on? Do you want to build on the rock or do you want to build on the sand? But in beginning this illustration, here's what he says, therefore, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. So if you hear the words of the Sermon on the Mount, and you not only hear them, but you embrace them in your life and you begin to see them and live them, you have done what pleases the Lord. You have done what he says will be building on a solid foundation. So that's where we're going in this summer series. We want to build on the rock. We want to be wise. We want to make sure that these characteristics, these beatitudes are really ours not because we've earned them or because we can do them in our own strength, but because He, through the Spirit of God, gives them to us as we walk with Him and as we seek Him. I want to begin this morning. You thought I already began, but I haven't begun. I want to begin with a little history lesson. And it goes back to the 300s B.C. when a man that became known as Alexander the Great began to rule in Macedonia, taking over from his father, Philip. He began to rule, and he was quite a, a young man. He died in his early 30s, only reigning for about 13 years. But in those 13 years, Alexander the Great conquered much of the world around him, all the way to India, down south as far as Africa, all over the Middle East, Alexander the Great, a Macedonian, 
and his armies, many times fighting armies twice his number. One time when he was fighting the uh, king from Persia, this king had 20,000 horsemen coming against him, and he lured them into a trap. Otherwise, he would have been defeated. He was quite a tactician. He trained his men to be soldiers, and he even went out into battle with them, unlike a lot of leaders in our present day. I'm not saying this to build Alexander the Great up. He was not a believer. He was a wicked man, but he was a man who knew how to fight. And the story goes about him, and I heard this one time from D. James Kennedy when he was still alive and preaching. I'm not so sure whether I was there in person or I heard it, watched him on a TV station, I'm, I'm not sure. But he gave this story, which was supposedly true about Alexander the Great, during or after one of his great battles. All of a sudden, one of his men brought a soldier to him that had been caught in the midst of battle, not doing his job, but eventually running and trying to flee and desert. Maybe you've heard this story. But anyway, when he's brought in to Alexander, who's a man with quite a reputation and quite, well, he, he could bring fear into people very easily. They brought this young soldier in and stood him before the king and said, King, this man, your soldier, was caught deserting in battle. And Alexander, with a very serious face, looked at him and he said, What is your name? And he said, Trembling, sir, my name is Alexander. Can you imagine how Alexander the Great felt at this moment? He lit up. He went into a rage and he said, Alexander! Alexander? You either change your name or change your character. Is that loud enough? That probably wasn't as loud as Alexander was. But this fits in to the story of the Beatitudes because there are lots of people in the world today who claim the name of Christ. If you ask them, who are you? What's your name? They say, I'm a Christian. That's Christ's name, isn't it? I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And here's the interesting thing. When it comes to character and character traits, these seven beatitudes that are given to us that are to make us exceedingly joyful, exceedingly happy, not only in this life, but in the life to come. I think a lot of people who profess his name do not have them. And I wonder if the Lord wouldn't be saying to them, either change your name or start 
magnifying my character in your life. That's where we're going as we go down the trail of these Beatitudes. This morning, we're going to start looking. There's seven Beatitudes, and then come two reactions from the world to those of us that are displaying these Beatitudes. And then comes the reaction. The third thing that we'll look at in this series is then comes what we can be in the world that comes against us, salt and light, what we should be. The world persecutes us, the world hates us, the world slanders us when we magnify the character of Jesus Christ. So this morning, by God's grace, we're going to start looking at the first of these seven. Here's the seven, poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, those who are merciful those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers. Those beatitudes, those character traits turn the world upside down. Either you see you don't have them and you want them by the grace of God and you go to Him and admit your need or you rebel against those who manifest these character traits. You persecute them. You don't like that. Do you know why? Because the world constantly says, I can do it. What's our government saying in this country today? I'm not going down the road of politics. What's our government always said, Republican or Democrat? We can fix it. We've been educated. We've been to the best schools. We know what we're doing. We can make this world a better place. We can make men decent and love one another. We can have a great country. Why do they say those things? Because the world constantly is looking and enamored with themselves. When it comes to God, they can work their way. If there is a God, they say, we can do what will please Him. We're capable of doing that. We're all capable of doing that. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount comes along and says, that's absolutely false. It is wrong. None of you can make yourself acceptable to me. None. The beginning of these Beatitudes is so important. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. This is the starting point. It's the first and it's first for a reason, because the others flow from it. The reason we mourn is because we recognize our poverty spiritually. The reason we become weak and are pure in heart and are merciful and are peacemakers, all of this comes because of the beginning that we recognize before God we are nothing absolutely nothing. So that's where we're going to go. And we're going to start with these four questions this morning as we look at this beatitude. Number one, what does poor in spirit mean? Number two, what is the reward connected to it? Number three, why is the 
why is it the most important beatitude of all seven that are given here? And finally, how do we obtain it? And how do we recognize, this is part of the same question, how do we recognize that we have it? How does it all take place? So the first thing is this, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Two parts to this. Number one is a common misunderstanding of the meaning of poor in this beatitude. If you are looking at, Le at Luke's, Luke's, Luke's recollection of the beatitudes, he says, blessed are the poor. Just blessed are the poor. But Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So who's right here? Some have said the way to re receive this beatitude is to sell all you have and give it to the poor. This is what the Roman Catholic Church has preached and taught for years, decades, decades. Is that correct? Is that, is that what the scriptures are teaching? The answer is absolutely not. It is poor in spirit. One of the ways that you would find this out is go to Luke in 620. He says poor in spirit in this section of the Beatitudes. In 622, he brings in the spiritual, the highly spiritual aspect. You're going to be hated you're going to be despised if you declare and live before the name of Christ. He makes it all spiritual. It's a spiritual context. Even though Luke has left off the word spirit, Matthew has it right. Poor in spirit. Look with me, if you would, for just a moment. Turn your Bible to Luke chapter 4. And verse 18 and 19, Luke chapter 4 and verses 18 and 19. And just gaze on these verses with me for a minute, if I can get my Bible open to that page. Okay, here we go. The Lord is speaking in a synagogue in early stages of his ministry, and he quotes from Isaiah. And here's what it says in the New American Standard looking down at verse 17. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Well, you say, oh my goodness, there it is again. Blessed are the poor. Does that mean that it's all reflecting on how much material goods I have? Do I need to get down to the bare minimum? Do I need to have nothing in order to be what he says in this beatitude? Well, the interesting thing is if you go back to Isaiah 61 in verse 1 and you read what he's quoting there from the Old Testament, the Old Testament says this, he preached the gospel to the afflicted or better yet, humble, to the humble not to the poor, to those who were humble in what way? In heart, in spirit. 
David says in Psalm 37, 25, Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. He's not saying that followers of the Lord have to be beggars. He's not talking about material things here. He's talking about spiritual things. If just, John MacArthur said this, and I thought he had an excellent point, if just the materially poor were in view, it would be good not to help them at all. You see why he would say that? Because helping them would make them not poor. It would make them okay. They wouldn't fit in that class anymore. This is all about spiritual poverty. That's what we're talking about here. And we'll see that as we go forward. Now let's get to the second part of this first question. What's a proper then understanding meaning of the phrase poor in spirit? The Greek word that's translated poor here is the word pokas, which means one that is so destitute that they cannot even work for a living. They can't do anything for a living. All they can do is lie on the side of the road with their hand out saying, please, somebody, help me. I don't have anything to give. This is the word that's here, and it can be used either in the physical sense or it can be used in the spiritual sense. One of the ways we see it in the physical sense is when it talks about in Luke 16, Lazarus and the rich man. It says Lazarus was poor. He was laying at the rich man's gate. He was hoping and praying that the rich man would let some of the crumbs from his table that fall from his table be brought out to Lazarus. He had sores and even the dogs were coming up and licking his sores. This is the word that's used of Lazarus there. In the physical sense, it's used of Lazarus. But it is also used many times in the spiritual sense, and even here, Matthew uses it that way, poor, beggars, when it comes to the spiritual things, it's the word pneuma, which means spirit, the inner man. We are an outer man and we are an inner man, physical and spiritual. And when we come to know Christ, the inner man is reborn, the inner man comes to life, it becomes spiritually alive to God. So he's saying the first attribute of someone who's a member of the kingdom, someone who's a follower of Jesus Christ, is to recognize your spiritual poverty. Recognize your spiritual poverty. Our Lord is saying that this blessed or exalting joy will, will become yours when you stand before God and you see who you are, and you see who He is, and all you can cry out is, please give me some crumbs. I have nothing, and I can get nothing. I want you to turn with me to Luke 18. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. This is the parable that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the publican, and probably there is no better illustration of this beatitude than this parable. Let me read it to you. 
And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple, he says, to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I like it because he says, not a sinner, the sinner. He sees himself before God, and he sees that he's in no different than Lazarus laying outside the rich man's home, wanting a few crumbs to eat for his physical body. He before God says, I have nothing to offer. I am a pauper. I beg you, be merciful to me. You remember the difference between grace and mercy? Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is withholding from us what we do deserve. And this tax collector recognizes where he is spiritually before God. He says, I deserve nothing. I deserve your wrath. I deserve condemnation. I am a sinner. I'm the sinner. God, all I can say is, will you withhold that wrath that I deserve? Will you be merciful to me? Will you meet my need? You see, we, like the tax gatherer, can have no confidence in anything that we can do to hold up to God and say, well, look at me. Look at what I've done for you. I am different than the rest of them. No, you're not. The beginning of our journey in coming to the Lord begins with looking at Him and seeing ourselves and seeing our absolute poverty when it comes to the Spirit. All of our attempts, all of our abilities, attempts to keep the law, attempts to be religious, attempts to be generous to the poor, attempts to pray enough, fast enough, go to church enough, be in the Bible enough, none of those, none of those in our own strength ever meets our need. It's only when we see there is no way I can do anything to be pleasing or right with God and fall before Him and say, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's it. That's all we can do. Even in his sermon on the mount, let's go back over to Matthew 5, if, if you've turned. I want to go into Matthew 6 for just a moment. In chapter 1 of Matthew 6, 
some of the practical sections of this Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what the Lord says, beginning with verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. One of the reasons that the Pharisees did this was so they could be seen of men and they could be told, you know, you're, you're, really, you're really something. Don't do that. Practice your righteousness to be uh, before men, to be seen of men. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in all the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you give to the poor, do not let your right hand know or your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then down at the very end of this uh, chapter, or not towards the end, down further, listen to another verse. He says, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head with, and wash your face so that your fasting will, be not, will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You see what was the problem with the Pharisees and the scribes? The problem was the same problem that Israel had back in Exodus when Moses comes down from the mountain and reads the commandments of God. And do you remember what Israel all began to say? We can do it. We will do it. They not only didn't do it, by and large, they are still not doing it. You remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 2? They have a zeal for God, but it is without knowledge. It's without knowledge of who they are and their need. They think they can, with their fasting and with their prayers and being out on the street corner and putting money into the plate, they can make their way to God and be pleasing to Him. Nothing is further from the truth of the Scriptures. We can do nothing. The beginning is to say, God, I don't know why you've put up with me as long as you have. I am deserving of your wrath. I am under your condemnation. And all I can plead is that you will be merciful to me through Jesus Christ. Would you do that? And if you are sincere in your heart, he will. Christ died for people who are poor in spirit, who will admit their poverty. David said in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Did the Pharisees have a broken and contrite heart? No. 
The Pharisees were saying, we're God's people. I'm glad I'm not like the rest of these people. I, I'm really different. I can do what he wants. And they kept the outwards without keeping the inwards because they were incapable of keeping the inwards because their spirit was dead. And they would not admit their need. Can you imagine a man that has nothing, that's laying on the roadside and can't work? Can you imagine him not begging? But here we are in the spiritual sense, before God, created by Him, with His Son who has died for the sins of the world, inviting us to come, and we're saying, I don't need that. I don't need that. I'm sufficient. I'm doing okay. I know what you want, and, and I'm, I'm producing. Luke 16, 15 says, that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The man that is poor in spirit depends entirely on the grace and mercy of God and nothing more that alone. He comes, as this Greek word says, as a pauper in desperate need, no way to help himself, and says, God, would you be merciful to me, the sinner? And the world says, I can do this. Look what I've done for you. God says, you don't know, you don't know your situation. You're under condemnation when you're born into this world and apart from the grace of God and the mercy of God. Through Jesus Christ, you will enter eternity and remain under judgment. There's a third thing I want to say here. We've looked at the words. We've looked at some passages. Third thing under this point, it's not only the condition by which we are to enter the kingdom. It's not only the starting place, but it is to be the continuing condition of a man or a woman of God as long as we live. Do you know why? Because we can't do one thing, even as a Christian, that is pleasing to God unless we walk by the Spirit. You remember Paul praying in Ephesians? He said, I bow my knees before God and for this people and I plead for them that they might be strengthened in the inner man with power by the Spirit so that Christ might dwell in their hearts through faith. Paul prayed this way all the time. Why? Because he knew he could not walk. He knew that we could not walk. The Ephesians could not walk. You can't do anything. You might get up one day and say, I, I'm okay, I'm, I'm fairly down the road in my Christian life now. I can do this, Lord. You know what the Lord's going to let you do real quickly? Fall right on your face. You can't do it in your own strength. You start off as a spiritual pauper and you live your life as a Christian constantly depending upon the Spirit of God that's in you and thanking God every day. Do you pray that way? Do you pray every day, Lord, I can't, 
I can't get to first base without your help. I can't go out and witness to anyone without your strength, without your help, without the Spirit doing this in me. You remember Paul's words. Paul said, I, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not, I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But he says, by the, he says, I, I, I am an apostle and I did more than all the rest of them. Whoops. Paul, what did you just say? He said, I did more than all the rest, but not me. It was the grace of God working in me. We take credit for nothing. Paul took credit for nothing. When he said at the end of his life, I fought a good fight, I have kept the faith, I finished the course. He was not saying he did that in his own strength. He wasn't saying, I did this and I earned my salvation that way. He was saying, I've been pleasing to God because he did this in me. He did it. Spiritual birth. The Spirit's indwelling me. All of these things. I'm not even sure what time it is or where I'm supposed to end, but are you okay? We keep going a little bit? All right. We cannot please God in our flesh. Paul said that in Romans, didn't he? You remember when Paul came to preach at Corinth? Paul said, I, I didn't come to you with words of wisdom of my own. I came to you in fear and trembling and depending upon the Spirit of God. That's how I came. That's how I preached to you. I was constantly depending upon the Spirit of God. In Romans chapter 8, listen to a few words from Romans 8, where Paul says this. He says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Now listen to this. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to our flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. What he's saying is, you're not a child of God. You're going you're to die spiritually. You will receive that which comes from disobeying God. You will die. Then he goes on to say, but if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. So then, brethren, we're under obligation if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And all who obey God, these are the sons of God. It's interesting. We, we don't get there by doing anything because we can't. We are dead in trespasses and sin. But after we're saved, we have supernatural power to live above every temptation that comes our way. If we do not live above, then we're saying to God, that which you've given to me is not enough. 
we need to be confessing our sins and walking in righteousness and showing by character we are his children and being humble. Humility is saying, you know, I, I couldn't preach this sermon apart from God. I could not study it and get the right material that I need. I could not get up here before you apart from His grace and the power of His Spirit. And any man who says he can is either lying or doesn't understand. He gets the glory. It's by His power, by His Spirit from beginning to end, all the way. What is the great reward connected with this particular beatitude? Blessed, happy, exaltingly happy are the poor when it comes to their spirit. Theirs is what? The kingdom of God. It's emphatic and it's continuous. It's a present tense. You already if you've come like the tax gatherer before Christ, recognized your sin, repented of it, and looked to Christ and put your trust in Him, you're a new creature. You didn't do that in your own strength. You did that by the grace of God. And you, from that moment and the rest of your life and the rest of eternity, are already in the kingdom. You have citizenship papers. The one who died for you is for you, and no one that matters can be against you. You're a kingdom citizen now, awaiting. This is the now, and then there's the not yet, when you are with him on the new earth for all eternity. That is coming for you. What a reward. But you already are in the kingdom. By the grace of God. How did that happen? It happened because you cried out, because He revealed to your heart who you were and what your need was. And you cried out to God for mercy. And you looked to Christ and found it in Him. There is no other. There is no other one. There is no other way. And the reward is magnificent, isn't it? Theirs is the kingdom. Not will be, not shall be if they live this way. Theirs when they come to Christ and recognize their poverty spiritually and look to Him. They're in the kingdom. They're forgiven for all eternity. Why is it so important to possess this attitude? Because it stands at the beginning. You can't get to the rest until you start empty and say, I, there's nothing I can do. I am nothing before you, God. You can't fill a pitcher that's already got something in it. He can only fill empty vessels. That's the beginning. It's so important. You start there. Everything flows from recognizing my excruciating need. 
and that he loved me and sent his son. And there's hope in him. That's humbling. But my friends, my brothers and sisters, we're to live that way every day of our lives. Don't get proud about your accomplishments. There is nothing that you have that hasn't come to you from him. Nothing. Even a speeding ticket, if you were speeding, has come from him. Everything that we have in this life is from him. There's no way to be prideful. There's no room for that. You can't hold up anything to God and say, look, look at what I, look at this. Has anybody else ever done this for you, Lord? What's he going to say? No, and the only reason you did that was because I enabled you. Because my spirit gave you the power. God gives grace to the humbles. Proverbs 16.5. God gives grace to the humble. This is an important one, and it's, it starts at the very beginning, and it goes through all of the other Beatitudes, build upon it, come from it, but it begins by saying, I'm an empty vessel, and I need filling. How do we know we have it, and how do we obtain it? Well, the way we obtain it again is before God, we bow admit our need, repent of our sin, and look to His Son, Jesus Christ, His person. He is the God-man. He's the perfect man. We look to His work on the cross. He died for the sins of all that will come. Completely done. We look to Him. That's how we obtain it. No other way. It could be as, as it was for me watching TV and a Billy Graham crusade was on when I turned it on and I was mesmerized and watched it to the very end and I'm back in the back bedroom in the dark on my knees. Because during that message, I saw myself and I saw him. And by the grace of God, became a part of the kingdom. Not by me, but by Him. Do you realize that if you read Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, you would find out that even my faith comes from Him? We are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. Not the grace, not the faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If the faith were even from me, you know what I could say? Lord, I'm one of those guys. I'm different than the rest I believed. And you know what he would say to me? The faith came from me. We are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's nothing to boast about. 
There's nothing to boast about if you've been given a gift by God and you're using it to His glory and you're seeing people blessed. There's nothing to boast about. There's none of this, well, you know, Lord, I can do this. You can't. Not without divine enablement, which He is willing to give. Now, here's the other part. How do I know that I've really done that? I made a profession of faith when I was 13 years old. And you've heard me say this before, but the next day in school, after Sunday night of going to the altar, kind of assisted by some of the older folks in church, got to watch those older people. The next day in school, I thought, I hope none of my friends hear about what happened last night. People thought I was a Christian for years, and it was 10 years later when God did a work in my heart. I was no more Christian than Humpty Dumpty. Well, I don't know really about his faith, but I'm just using him as an example. Here's some things I want to say to you to kind of give you some assurance that I have done this. I've become poor in spirit. I've come to the Lord. I've received his grace. I've become a new creature. Here's some things. Seven things kind of matches the Beatitudes. We can make sure that we are in and part of a church that preaches the word of God verse by verse and believes it and proclaims it unashamedly and has elders in that church that will hold me accountable for living a godly life. Number two, we can spend much time with our Lord in prayer and on our knees and, our, and time in the Word every day so that our heart will constantly be enlightened and strengthened, strengthened by His grace, by the Spirit. Number three, we can pray specifically for the strengthening of the Holy Spirit as Paul prayed for the Ephesians. Lord, strengthen me in the inner man with power by the Spirit. I can't do it without your help today or tomorrow or any day. It's when we start trying to walk on our own that we get ourselves in big trouble. It's when we start excusing a little teeny sin. Be assured more will come when we start to walk in the flesh. Number four, we can ask God to help us find an accountability partner and one who will be honest with you. Do you have an accountability partner? Someone that you meet with and, and you talk about spiritual things and you say, if you see anything in my life, I want you to tell me. I want to know. Accountability partners are good to, to keep us not only realizing what God is doing, but, but to keep us on track. We can, number five, continually study the character of God in Scripture, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. And then in light as we study that and see the character of God, we can examine ourselves. Are we still poor in spirit? Number six, we can constantly thank God for His grace, His undeserved grace to us. I have often said, God, when I look at my family at large, there were many who did not come to Christ. 
there are some still to this day that haven't come to Christ. And my question to God is, why me? I've never gotten an answer for that. And I don't ever expect to hear anything like, well, it's because you were different. No, I was bad. When people hear that I have spent most of my life in the ministry as a pastor who were in my high school and I go back to those graduations, they go, excuse me? You what? Say that again. You were what? A pastor? I knew you. I knew what you were like. I would never have guessed that's what you would have done. No, it wasn't me. It was the grace of God, and we need to be constantly thanking Him for that in light of our unworthiness and our need. Number seven, we can stop complaining. My wife is good to remind me of that at times, especially when I'm driving. <laughs> she is very good to say, honey, now, now I go, you're right. The light isn't as long as I thought it was. Stop complaining. As you reflect upon what he has given you, be thankful in all things. Be thankful. So this morning, my concluding question to you is, how are you doing? Have you come to that place where you've fallen on your face before God and said, I am totally unworthy, I am empty, I have nothing, and like that tax gatherer, I cry out to you for mercy and I look to your son to find it. Have you done that? Are you continuing to walk that way? Are you continuing to remind yourself? Are you continuing to be humble and recognize that all that you have, everything that you have, both in the spiritual and in the physical realm, has been given to you as a gift from God and to be used for His glory. Is that where you are? This is the starting. This is what people in the kingdom look like. And the world hates it. Because it goes against everything the world says is valuable. I can do it. No, you can't. You can't do it. This beatitude is extremely unpopular sometimes even in the church. I remember when somebody was talking to me and, and telling me that their church board was having a discussion about bringing in a new pastor and who to bring in and how they were going to do that. And they began to pray. And one guy said, you know what? If we can just get Chuck Swindoll to come here, this church will grow. Why would you say something like that? when the church belongs to Christ and you're looking to what? A man? It is so easy. And I don't say Chuck was doing this. People were doing it. Boy, if we could just get Chuck Swindoll here, it would make all the difference in the world. I can assure you it won't. Men of God are just that. Men of God. And it's God who does the work through them 
if they are humble and calling out to him for the strength. That's it. That's it in a nutshell. I hope you've begun that way. You've taken that first step and admitted, I am a spiritual pauper. Because these others will grow from that. There's progress. There's continuum. One grows out of the other. You begin to mourn. You, begin, you become very meek and gentle. You begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness because of what God is doing in you. And then you become a peacemaker and merciful and pure in heart. But know this, every true child of God will have all of these attributes and character traits in their life to some degree if they know Him. You're all in this together. We have to pursue the things that are in the Sermon on the Mount. Are you ready to do that as we go through this? I'm praying the Lord will speak to me and all of us and that we will come through this summer and be different than we've ever been. Closer to Him. Closer knowing who we are. Closer knowing who we serve and why and walking in the power of the Spirit. Are you with me? Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time together this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to remember our Lord in communion. Thank you for being in the Word of God. And I pray that you would take the Word of God and, and just use it, Father, and change our hearts. We remember Paul's words in 2 Timothy that the Word of God is from all Scripture. And all Scripture is God-breathed. And it's powerful for reproof, instruction, correction, training in righteousness. We want that. We want to be in your Word. We want to be people of your Word. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning that your spirit is speaking to. May they be like the tax gatherer and not the, not the Pharisee. May they call out for mercy. May they cling to Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Father, I thank you for our missionary family that's gone out, is taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, even in some difficult days. I thank you for our opportunity to be witnesses in this community. May we do it in the power of your spirit, and may we do it more, Father, um, directly, more meaningfully, more often. May we be bearers of the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. They won't want to hear it in the flesh, but that's okay. You will use it. Your spirit will use it to change hearts and lives. Father, I thank you for this church, both 
West and East, thank you for the privilege of taking this message to the East Campus tonight and being with them. I pray that we would be a church that you are totally pleased with, that are humbly walking in the power of your spirit, that see our place, that see we're children of the kingdom, to know that we bear the name of Christ and we must then bear his character. You can do that in us and we want it. Thank you for this time together this morning. Thank you for the needs that you have met even while we've been here and the needs that you will meet. May all that we desire and all that we want and all that we ever hope for be wrapped up in you. Nothing more, nothing less. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.